Do you know it takes as much energy to produce one pound of silicon to build computer infrastructure as it does to produce 1,000 pounds of steel? In this episode, we're going to talk about why that matters and how that links to the just passed massive CHIPS Act to subsidize semiconductor manufacturing in America, with the even bigger, in fact, by more than a factor of 10, about to pass Lollapalooza spending bill on green energy. It's the new huge legislative act that's called, in a kind of skillful turn of Orwellian phrase, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. Congress really is in the mood to spend money, it seems like. Before we get to the IRA, and is it just me? First, is, is that a coincidence? This bill's abbreviation, IRA, is close to the acronym IRS, the agency that gets a huge chunk of the new money needed in the IRA by taxing corporations and citizens to pursue the hundreds of billions of dollars needed for the green energy dreams in the IRA. I mean, coincidence? Well, anyway, I digress. <laughs> As I said, before we get to the IRA, let me connect the dots between the newest energy bill. That's essentially what the IRA is. It's an energy spending bill. Overwhelmingly, it's what it's about. And the connecting the dots between this new bill, it's about to pass in the Congress as I speak, and the just passed CHIPS Act that we talked about in the immediately preceding episode. If you haven't listened to that uh, episode yet, you can do so later. It's uh, But in a nutshell, Congress is planning to give grants and incentives of over $50 billion to have companies build more semiconductor manufacturing plants in America, computer chip fabs, computer chip factories. It's, this is to restore our once great leadership in that domain. It should go without saying, but I'll say it, why chips matter. In fact, I wrote an entire book about why it matters, you know, the cloud revolution. As I've said before, the relevance, you can sort of summarize the relevance by the fact that we're at the end of the beginning of the Silicon Age, not the beginning of its end. There's a lot more to productively digitalize yet, and it's going to take a lot of silicon. But here's a connection with the this subject of the last episode, the CHIPS Act, and this episode about the IRA, which is really the Green Energy Spending Lollapalooza Act. Chip fabs, factories, are like steel mills or aluminum mills. They're huge energy consumers. As I said at the top of this episode, it takes as much energy to produce one pound of silicon to build computer infrastructures as it does to produce 1,000 pounds of steel to build other kinds of infrastructures. Historically, this is kind of interesting, you know, historically the energy costs to manufacture products, especially products that dominated the last century and all the centuries that preceded, the energy costs to make a product roughly track the weight of the product. And so a refrigerator that weighs about 150 times more than say a hairdryer takes nearly 100 times more energy to fabricate. That kind of makes sense, but it takes almost as much energy to make one smartphone as it does to make that one refrigerator. And even though that smartphone weighs a thousand times less, and just for the record, the world produces 10 times more smartphones a year than refrigerators. I'll give me another example, sort of context in the pantheon of products that the world cares about. So the global fabrication of smartphones requires about 15% as much energy as does the entire 
global automotive industry, even though every one of those cars weighs 10,000 times more than a smartphone. That's why I said before, I have in my book, the interesting energy fact that the global cloud, the, the massive physical compute communications infrastructure, the global cloud uses nearly twice as much electricity as the entire country of Japan. Which brings us to a fact relevant to the IRA, again, the green spending Lollapalooza. Over 80% of the semiconductor-grade silicon that we use in the world is made in China, uh, where they have policies that are favorable, to be sure, to building manufacturing plants, but they also have cheap electricity because the grid there is about two-thirds coal-fired. So it's not a stretch to say that cheap coal is being converted into expensive silicon to build high-value chips, build them, build them somewhere. So back to the IRA, and it's hundreds of billions of dollars to be spent in America, not just to eliminate the rest of the coal that's used in America's grids. You know, It's still about 20% of our electricity, by the way, but also to eliminate the goal is also to eliminate the use of natural gas, about 40% of our electricity. And the goal, as you know, is to eliminate the use of oil, which is currently about 95% of what fuels all forms of transportation collectively in America. <clears throat> as of this date, IRA has to hasn't had seen final passage, but the odds are pretty high. Like a like the Obamacare Act, it'll pass strictly along par party lines, uh, it, with the Democrats exercising their uh, thin one vote majority uh, through what's called parliamentary procedure in the sen Senate. This 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 means uh, as a brief and very quick rhetorical aside that our government and I say this as a past and current Canadian, <laughs> American as well now, that our government here in America is becoming more like a parliament, uh, which is arguably not so good. Certainly not what was intended in the founding of the country, but then uh, I'm digressing again. So odds are it'll pass. Uh, and if it doesn't pass in exactly the form it's in now, it'll eventually, uh, uh, odds are pretty high, something like this will pass. Uh, and if not exactly like this, it would not be surprising because Dem Democrats have teamed up with Republicans in the past, over the past 40 years, to pass similar legislation. So more money will be spent on green. Uh, let's just set aside whether that's good or bad. Uh, it just is. So let me let me tell you, uh, let me tell you what I'm not going to tell you, and then what, what I want to talk about. I'm not going to talk a lot about what this bill contains. Lots written about it. You can find it on the uh any any platform you want to look at, any news outlet, everybody's writing about it because it's so big. It's huge, huge act. Uh, lots of spending on all the uh, green goals that this administration laid out. It's no, no mystery. This is not a, a sneak a sneak attack. Uh, the president has been very clear that he's going to pursue the climate agenda to, you know, not just revoke Keystone Pipeline and other infrastructures, but to spend lots more money on green. It's been. It's been the was the campaign province that's promise. And so he's delivering on his promise. That's what Paul, you know, give him credit for delivering what he promised. That's what he said he'd do. That's what the Democrats are doing. And it and, uh, it's covers everything from wind and solar to batteries to, you know, hydrogen, carbon capture, all all the all the favorite stuff. Um, and set aside whether or not it'll actually cut inflation, even though that's what the act's called. There are several credible studies. You can find them, Dr. Google that uh, point out that at best it won't be inflationary and at worst it will be inflationary. So we'll see a lot will depend on how much money the IRS can connect, collect uh, for you know, the new so-called revenues 
to uh, redeploy them. And, you know, revenues, this is a euphemism for taxing businesses and people uh, to redeploy them on uh, green energy. But it is true, as the green advocates have trumpeted, that the IRA uh, has the potential to be a groundbreaking bill. And I quote, when it comes to U.S. climate policy and long-term investments in clean energy, end quote. So let me context, though, what's not groundbreaking. Uh, it is groundbreaking amount of money. I grant you that. Hundreds of billions of new subsidies, definitely groundbreaking. Um, probably the most the biggest subsidy bill for for uh, energy in general that's passed in uh, in modern history in America. Uh, that's groundbreaking. Uh, what's not groundbreaking is uh, how much it'll change global carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, for the record, the U.S. emissions of carbon dioxide, if it's something you track, are down about 15% or so since 2005. Uh, two-thirds of that, this is just a documented fact, it's not a, an opinion, but two-thirds of that comes entirely from the money-saving shift from uh, coal to cheap shale gas. And about a third of that uh, reduction in carbon dioxide emissions is from the uh, already hugely subsidized expansion of wind and solar. So the goal of the IRA is to essentially do that much reduction again in half the time, uh, but without more natural gas displacing coal, but rather subsidizing more wind and solar and the like. Uh, we'll see how that works. I guess we're going to try. But for context about whether it's game-changing, if the emissions reductions were to be achieved it would not rise to a 3% reduction in global carbon dioxide emissions. In fact, if the world grows as I think it'll grow, it might not even account to a 2% change in global carbon dioxide emissions and at pretty high cost. So some thinks that cost is worth it. I'm not in that camp, but th those are just the facts. The opinions separate. So let me talk about some more facts to context this issue. The issue is not inflation reduction. The issue here is a massive spending, which is what this, again, the IRA is about, on uh, non-hydrocarbon energy. So what I want to do in this episode is very briefly, say two minutes or so per factoid, is tell you the top 10 energy truths about what's going on in the world of energy. Uh, there's lots of other truths, but I, I sort of tried to come up with what are the top 10 truths you have to know? Not political opinions, not aspirations, not goals, uh, not must-dos, could-dos, wanna-dos, but in the physics and economics and engineering of energy, what are the top 10 truths that you have to keep in mind to understand what will or could happen regardless of how much money is spent? So truth number one, energy transformations, transitions is the new word, but Energy transformations are slow, very slow. If you map out the change in the uh, quantities and shares of global energy supplies over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years, pick your time period. Uh, what you find is that there's a there are the change in the share of energy that the world uh, uses as new forms of energy become available or new technologies emerge more properly to provide energy. The, the rate of change is just remarkably slow. As I've said before, again, one bottom line context, the world's the Western world, OECD world, has spent about $5 trillion in the past two decades to avoid using hydrocarbons. That has resulted, in fact, 
in a reduction in the share of world's energy coming from hydrocarbons. And then it's gone down just two percentage points. So 20 years ago, the world got 86% of all energy from hydrocarbons. Today, it's about 84%, uh, or last year it was. So that's a two percentage point reduction over 20 years with massive mandates and policies and spending. You know, just to give you a sense, the other side of how slow things change, burning wood still supplies globally 500% more energy to the world than do all the world's solar panels combined. So transitions are slow. Wood is one of the oldest energy forms in America, in the world, and the world still uses a lot of it. In fact, slightly more than it did 20 years ago. Fact number two, energy truth number two, economic growth always creates demand for more energy. Yes, we get more efficient. Energy efficiency, in fact, helps spur increased consumption of energy because it makes critical energy cheaper for people who are poor, and then they use more energy because they don't use enough now. They use a tiny fraction of the amount of energy that the most of the world uses. The people, the billion people who are wealthy don't use just a little bit more energy than the six billion who are poor. They use roughly 500% more energy per capita on average than the people who are poor. And for really poor countries, they use 5,000% more energy per capita. You could do the math on this. This means that people in the Western world use more energy in a day than many people in the world use in a year. As wealth arrives to more people in the world, energy demand will go up. The implication of that, by the way, is we're going to need more of that old phrase, all of the above. It's just a fact. Look, I, not to beat it to death, in the wealthy nations, there's 80 cars per 100 citizens. Uh, most of the world, there's only a few cars per 100 people. Uh, probably 85%, well, let's just use rounded off, 80% of the world population have never taken a single air flight. As they become wealthier, they're going to want to do what you do. So let's go to truth number three. Shale technology, the shale revolution in America, is in fact history's biggest energy revolution. I'm not saying this is a political fact. I'm just giving you a, or a cheerleader fact. This is just a statistical fact. If you look at the trend of 2005 to 2020, which is the period of the rise of the great American shale energy industry, producing oil and gas from shale rock. During that 15-year period, the increased energy supply to the world from the U.S. shale fields uh, was double the increased supply of energy to the world from all the global wind and solar arrays combined. If I keep it just in the United States, which is, of course, germane to us, our country, the increased production of energy from shale, which I would, again, remind you, came as a way to reduce energy costs, did not require government subsidies, that supplied 800% more energy to America than did all of the subsidized growth of wind and solar combined in America. To put it in geopolitical context, the increase in energy production of oil and gas in America during that short 15-year period was the largest increase in energy supply that the world has ever seen of any kind anywhere. The only thing that was close was the rise of Saudi Arabia's giant Gowar oil field 
in the 60s. So during a similar 15-year period from 1965 to 1980, the rise of the Guar Fields output essentially established Saudi Arabia's power, directly led to the formation of OPEC and a reshaping of the world's geopolitics. And again, for context, over the same time period, the rise, not the same time, the same time period, the same 15-year kind of period, the increased production from the shale fields of America was close to double the increased production of energy from the Saudi Arabia great oil fields of the Middle East. Geopolitics was reset by what happened in Saudi Arabia. It's clearly been reset, even if ignored by what happened with shale fields of America. Energy truth number four, green energy isn't carbon free. Well, I know it's it can be carbon reducing, but this is the key thing. We're being told, or a lot of people believe that it's carbon free. Uh, the reason I say that is it's uncomplicated. The reality of the world is that, as I've said many times, all machines take materials and energy, um, materials to be dug out of the earth using energy, materials uh, refined and converted using energy, and those materials turn into other machines using energy to build a machine, whether it's a gas turbine, an electric car, a battery, or a solar array. You, you can, and many analysts have, count up the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide emitted, to make and operate green machines and compare it to the CO2 emitted to make and operate hydrocarbon machines. I'll give you just one example of what the outcome of that calculation reveals. Volkswagen, and I think they're doing this to avoid a carbon equivalent of diesel gate, that's just my opinion. They published at their website and you can find it, just, just type in to um, your uh, Google Finder or whatever search engine you use. Volkswagen, from the well to the wheel, that uh, their study they published online. What they did is they mapped out how long it, it takes uh, to drive uh, an electric car before the electric car actually net saves carbon dioxide or put differently. What they show is that roughly for the first, well, depends on the assumptions you make, but in the graph that they show, roughly the first 60 to 70,000 miles of driving a Volkswagen diesel, you, you emit less carbon dioxide to the world cumulatively than driving a Volkswagen electric SUV. Uh, so when does the crossover occur? Depends on the assumptions you make about where you get the materials and energy to make the batteries, fundamentally, the materials for them. Crossover occur, again, occurs around uh, 60, 70,000 miles, and uh, it, can, it, 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 it may never occur in some cases, by the way, but in any case, Assume for the sake of discussion that the Volkswagen map will always be true. What that tells you is that it's not carbon-free and how much CO2 reductions actually occur are far, far less than you might imagine. Certainly not 100% elimination. It may not even be 50%. It might be more like 10 or 20%, which is not nothing, but it's not the elimination of carbon dioxide. Energy truth number five, energy tech cannot emulate the digital tech performance curve. But differently, even though happy green warriors constantly, and I, I'm saying it in a kind of insulting way, I guess, constantly babble about how energy tech will follow computing tech into a radical change and accelerating cost reductions the way computers have. That's just silly. It doesn't happen. Can't happen in the world we live in because the physics of energy are different than the physics of information. Full stop. Not even close. But energy tech's gotten a lot better. Batteries have uh, improved not just a little bit, 
they've improved hundreds of percent. In fact, the best performance battery you could have pre-lithium uh, was terrible. Electric cars were awful, just awful. Now they're now they're great. They work well. Too expensive, but they work. They work just fine. They do high performance, all kinds of wonderful metrics, and that's because of a roughly 300% improvement in the energy density, maybe more like 400% improvement in the energy density of uh, batteries to drive vehicles. It's a big deal, but it's not a 4 million percent improvement of performance that computer chips have seen over the same time period. So you can get, you get my point. Energy truth number six. So the energy transition hardware radically increases the demand for physical minerals. Talked about this before. This has enormous meaning uh, for both the carbon dioxide issue I just spoke about, for economics, for social justice, if you like, for environmental impacts around the world. Roughly speaking, the amount of copper, nickel, manganese, zinc, obviously lithium, uh, things like rare earths, but collect the collective suite of minerals that are needed to... Uh, build green machines, electric vehicles, solar arrays, uh, wind farms, the increase in demand for those minerals is roughly a thousand percent over building hydrocarbon machines. This is a significant increase in demand uh, for the world's mining industry and the mining and refining infrastructure. It is one that is not a mystery. It's well-documented by the International Energy Agency, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, by analysts around the world. Uh, it's not an easy problem to solve, but it's but it's just a fact. And it's a fact of meaningful consequence for where we get the minerals and what they cost and the impacts on other things, which brings me to energy truth number seven. Energy transition policies are inflationary. Brings me back to where I started on the IRA. The To imagine that increasing the demand on minerals by 1,000 to 7,000% isn't inflationary. Uh, well, it just fails uh, the Economics 101 sniff test. That magnitude of demand increase over a decade, which is the what's imagined a decade or two, is profoundly inflationary because it shifts the energy sector from being a minor user of minerals that are needed mm -hmm. for all other purposes, You know, nickel, cobalt, aluminum, uh, lithium, copper, these, these metals are used for many other purposes in society. The energy sector is a minor user of those metals. The energy transition goal will move the energy sector from being a minor user to the primary user, using anywhere from half to 80% of all the world's supply of an increased supply, but by, by, bear in mind, of these minerals. What that means is that the price of those minerals will go up if these plans are implemented and the cost, everything else made from those minerals will go up and those, it, it will, it will go up in a meaningful amount in an inflationary amount, which uh, brings me to point number eight, energy truth number eight, green energy isn't cheap. Yes, I know. I know that we're being told you hear constantly, you read constantly that Wind and solar and batteries are at or reach cost parity with hydrocarbons. I've, I'll, I'll, I'll turn to the subject again, but let's just state for the record, it's not true. Uh, every state and every country that has increased the share of electricity supplied by wind and solar has experienced higher cost electricity. 
uh, anywhere from a 200% increase to a 500% increase in the cost of electricity delivered to consumers, even, even when the share of wind and solar it remains at well under half of the supply, more like a quarter to a third. So it's a inflationary in that sense, not cheap. The reason it increases the cost of electricity to deliver consumers is because the cost metric is not just the cost of electricity when the wind's blowing, it's the cost of electricity all the time. What you have to do to supply energy when the wind isn't blowing, put it simplistically, how you have to operate a grid, whether or not it means adding batteries, which costs money, uh, and you can't add enough batteries, topic again for another day, or you keep a shadow grid running as Germany has. Germany has two grids, which is by definition expensive. You keep the shadow grid running so that when the wind isn't blowing, you have electricity. Uh, and that shadow grid is at risk in Germany because they get their energy for the shadow grid from, you know, drum roll, Russia. Actually, I should have said tank roll, Russia. What's happening though now is that the cost to build green machines, which has been declining for years by a lot, is now creeping back up, not going down. Even though you keep hearing how wind, solar, and batteries are going to get cheaper forever, the modelers who model the future have failed to take into account, let me say that, the modelers who model the future, model the future based on continual declines in the cost to build wind, solar, machines, and batteries. But in fact, what we're seeing is those machines getting more expensive and they're getting more expensive precisely because the costs of materials needed to build them, aluminum, copper, nickel, lithium, silicon, are going up. And in fact, uh, solar uh, module costs have been rising uh, for two and a half years or up about 20%. Wind turbine costs have been rising for roughly the same amount of time. They're they're up now uh, about 15%, forecast to go up another 15%. Battery capital costs have stopped going down, forecast to rise this year and again next year. The bet for the future is, is not a bet on whether or not manufacturers can improve their processes, it's whether or not there'll be enough minerals and miners can expand fast enough to keep prices from rising there. And the reason that's the bet is because mineral inputs, the metal commodities, account for about 60 to 70% of the cost to produce a solar module and about 60 to 70% of the cost to make a lithium battery. So the future costs of green machines is now fundamentally in the hands of how much change there is in the global mining industry. Which brings me to the second of the last truths, energy truth number nine, China is the OPEC of green energy minerals. It's not China that mines most of the copper or nickel. America doesn't, by the way. Let's just stipulate America is a small player on the global stage when it comes to mining. We we uh, drove the mining industry out of our country starting about 40 years ago and aggressively pursued that more. In the last couple of decades, and in fact, this administration has canceled permits that uh, mining companies have sought to expand the production of things like copper, by the way, and nickel in America. We're a net importer of minerals. Uh, and China is the biggest miner of rare earths, as you probably read and heard a lot about in the news. And those matter a lot for all kinds of tech. But the mining is done elsewhere. But the critical thing is where the refining is done, the processing, the conversion of the raw minerals into useful chemicals to make green machines. And here, China is utterly dominant. They uh, have a 35 to 40% to 60% to 90% market share in mineral processing of the various critical energy transition minerals. Or put differently, uh, Ch uh, China's uh, 
share of the critical energy minerals market is more than double OPEC's share of world oil markets today. That has meaning and consequence. Uh, we'll talk about meaning and consequences separately another time, but it's just a fact. That's the fact today. It's not an easy thing to change. It's not easy to change because even if we wanted to build lots more refineries and build more mines here, it takes time. And there's no evidence that we really want to do that because if we really wanted to do that, we'd reform our our regulatory regime. And there is zero evidence uh, that either party has the appetite to do that, which that means for the foreseeable future, an expansion of energy transition policies is an expansion of US imports of materials and it's an expansion of US dependency on China, full stop, just a fact. You can have your own opinion about what that fact means. Some are happy about it, some are not happy about it, but it's a fact. And now the last, the very last of the 10 truths uh, about energy that again are immune to political aspiration. And that's the truth that markets and consumers what they want is reliably cheap energy. They want those two metrics to occur simultaneously. They want their energy to be cheap and they want it to be available when they need it. In fact, that's what fuels economies. It, 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 would be, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say the single most consequential transformation over all of the span of human history has been in the radical reduction in the amount of money and time that societies have had to spend on acquiring food and fuel. For almost all of human history until the age of hydrocarbons, so for all the thousands of years up until roughly the 18th century, somewhere between 60 and 80% of all of the economic output of every society has been consumed in finding and acquiring, storing and delivering food and fuel. Think, think about that again. If two thirds to three quarters of all of the economic value of an economy is tied up in, in acquiring food and fuel, there doesn't leave much money for everything else. See, everything else, of course, is healthcare, entertainment, travel, vacations, protecting the environment, uh, protecting the disadvantaged, all the things that money can be used for is have been freed up by the fact that today, globally, until for now, something on the order of 15% of the average economy in the in the Western world, this order of magnitude, is used to acquire food and fuel. It's just a profound transformation. And we do so and have done so for well over a century and a half reliably inexpensive and reliable energy is taken for granted. When energy is cheap, you take it for granted because it's cheap and it's in the background. When Peter Huber and I, my old friend, was mentioned before, died tragically last year, not of, not of COVID, but he died. He and I wrote the book, The Bottomless Well, and the subtitle was The Twilight of Fuel. And by that, what we meant was that one of the great, great improvements in human well-being and economic well-being was that the cost and the nature of how we get energy sort of receded into the twilight. We just ignored it. It became minor. You took for granted. This is a good thing. 
It's a it's a spectacular thing. Obviously, if if you can find uh, and one can find new ways to produce energy that are cheaper and as reliable as what we're doing today, which is dominated by hydrocarbons, that would be a good thing too. And, and really, the only thing that could possibly do that, and the pantheon of technologies and the physics of energy that we know, is nuclear energy, which is a subject that I will talk about in another podcast. But it's not the subject of today. So with that, those are the 10 truths. So let me, uh, should I repeat the 10 truths? Just uh, one word at a time? Just, <laughs> why not, right? Truth number one, energy transformations are slow. Truth number two, economic growth creates demand for more energy. Number three, shale technology is history's biggest energy revolution. Number four, green energy isn't carbon free. Number five, energy tech can't emulate the digital tech performance curve. Number six is energy transition hardware radically increases the demand for minerals. Number seven, energy transition policies are then inflationary. And number eight, green energy isn't cheap. And number nine, China is the OPEC of green energy minerals. And the great number 10, the markets and consumers want reliably cheap energy. That's something politicians are learning the hard way in Europe right now. And maybe we'll learn the hard way here in America. I'd rather learn, I'd rather get ahead of it. I hope we will, but we're gonna spend lots of money clearly if this legislation goes through as it looks like it will on the IRA green energy of Lollapalooza. So with that, that's enough for this episode. Uh, my optimistic note is it will it will not cause as much inflation as I fear, as some fear, because we'll partly grow out of it as the cloud revolution takes hold. And I think we'll throttle it back if the Congress changes hands. If it doesn't, maybe I'm not so optimistic. <laughs> so we'll see. With that, we're done for this episode. And as I say every time, and anyone who has a podcast says, please provide a rating, a positive one, on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And uh, we'll answer questions in a future podcast. Return to the subject of both energy and tech in the coming weeks and months as we unravel the spending. I will remain stubbornly optimistic. Bye for now. This is Mark Mills, The Last Optimist.